This is Jackman Radio. I'm Susie Wiseman. On today's program, investigative journalist, researcher, and photojournalist Jeremy Bigwood joins us with his observations and perceptions about Russia and Ukraine, where he's been living off and on since 2017. Jeremy's insights are especially valuable as he spent the last five years talking to ordinary Russians, in his words, not the intelligentsia. And this helps our understanding of those who support Putin and the so-called special military operation, those who avoid taking a stance, and those who oppose Putin in the war. Jeremy left Moscow just a month after Russia invaded Ukraine, going first to Odessa and then to the front lines near Mykolaiv and from there to the front lines near Kherson. Jeremy returned to Washington, D.C. a few months ago, bewildered to see the divisions in the American left over the nature of the war, especially those who do not support Ukraine's defensive war for national survival and who only see the U.S., NATO, and Russia leaving no agency for Ukraine. We get Jeremy's views when our program returns in just a moment. This is Jackman Radio. I'm Susie Wiseman. Today, we're really fortunate to talk to Jeremy Bigwood. He's a photojournalist and researcher who has lived in Russia for much of the past five years and in Ukraine over the spring and summer, including on the front lines in Kherson. So he's going to bring us a wealth of observations and insights about, I guess, Russia's and the war. And Jeremy is just to introduce you. I look him up online and he's an investigative journalist and photojournalist. And he spent like a decade in Latin America. And in 2020, he said he began in Moscow, but after a hasty retreat from there last March, spent much of the spring and summer in Ukraine, including on the front lines, as I just said. And he is a man of uh, many talents and many hats. He is also has a background in science and publishes in the scientific literature. And as I said, spent more than a decade in Latin America, including uh, with Mark Cooper in El Salvador way back when, covering conflicts then as a photojournalist and then more recently as a historical researcher. And he specializes, this should be of interest to our listenership, in using the Freedom of Information Act and various archives in both the U.S. and abroad for academics and journalists. And I should let Jeremy tell the story, but he went to Russia at a certain point to learn Russian. And little did he know that several years down the road, Russia would be an inhospitable place to be. So I'm going to let Jeremy tell the story, but first just welcome you to the show. Well, thank you. It's a pleasure to be here. Thank you. You're so welcome. And I can't wait for this because although we have been covering Ukraine and Russia, well, from forever, but especially since, you know, the invasion in February, and we've spoken to Ukrainians and Russians, it's always great to get an American eye from someone who was there, but not there, let's say, in an academic role. And because you learn the language, uh, we're able to actually get a lot of impressions. So I wanted to begin with what the present day is, and then I'll let you talk about your background, because I think that'll be interesting. Uh, Just to let the listeners know, this is the week that there was a missile that landed in Poland and killed two people. And it turns out that this was accidental, and it could even be a metaphor 
for Russian weaponry because the missile, which was originally Soviet, but in arsenal of the Ukrainian army, and so from Soviet times, and its landing in Poland was an accident. And that brings to mind many jokes that I used to hear about the quality of of the Russian, let's call it, military arsenal, which, you know, has not been modernized. The dropping of this missile brought fear about it being the catalyst for World War III. Thankfully, that hasn't turned out to be the case. And then other news, just for me perusing before uh, starting the program, in the Donbass, turns out that mobilized students, now we'll talk about the mobilization later, uh, were fired from military service, and others who have been there from the Donbass are refusing to fight on Russia's side. So it all you know, goes more toward, let's call it Russia's losing the war. And on the other hand, today we have reports of Russia making strikes on Ukrainian energy uh, centers and continuing in their retreat and other major setbacks from Kherson. So um, I think you said that there was a lot of euphoria about that. Maybe I'll let you start with just your, I guess, view on the present and what happened in Kherson, and then we'll talk about you. Well, basically, Kherson was a situation where you essentially had the Ukrainian forces wanting very much to retake it because it was this capital. It was also strategically extremely important. And there was a desire to get it done as quickly as possible, but it was extremely hard to do. It was extremely well defended. I was there in August and, uh, well, I wasn't in Kherson. I was a few miles away from it, but it was a very much an artillery war. And in the past, I've covered insurgencies, and they've always been insurgencies in Latin America. And none of these have been artillery wars. So this was the first artillery war that I've actually seen. And basically, you really can't go very far when you have cluster bombs coming off overhead Every few, you know, you don't know when it's going to happen again. And so you can make preparations and go very slowly, but it is very, very hard to do. But when I was there in um, August, it seemed like Hersom was, well, the, the Ukrainians were making it seem that that's what they were really after. And that was a really important thing. But They were also fooling the Russians and fooling me (laughs) because because what they were really doing is that, yes, Kherson, they were after that, but they made a huge advance in the northeast of the country. And that's what they were really doing. And they were making it seem like like they were going to advance on Kherson. They were having press, lots of press come through. Not a lot, but enough. And so it made it seem like that's what the Ukrainians were doing. The thing about the Ukrainians, I've always covered insurgencies, which essentially are civil wars in which there are, you're in a country and there's people on both sides. This was the first time I've been in a country where I never met anyone who expressed anything positive about the Russians. Ever and the troops that I was with were all Russian speaking, so 
these people were fighting the Russian army and, you know, the orders were being given in Russian. And, you know, it may have just been this unit that I was with that that was that way. But, uh, you know, they all spoke Ukrainian, but Russian was more natural for them. So the whole concept of Russian speakers wanting to be part of Russia just doesn't cut it. It just doesn't work at all. But- uh, let me just come in for one second on that, because there is this perception and maybe maybe it's in in Russia, but it, I kind of doubt it. But it is this notion that if you speak Russian, then you are with Russia. But of course, we know that all of the eastern portion of Ukraine was Russian speaking. Kiev was a Russian speaking city. Mm-hmm. And for most people, you know, at least in this uh, region, learning Ukrainian was learning a second language. I think that that's that doesn't make them any less Ukrainian. <laughs> doesn't make them any less Ukrainian. And I mean, a comparison I like to make, which is not true on other levels, but is the American colonists spoke English and they were fighting the British and uh, who, who were English speakers, of course. So that is a comparison I like to make. But basically, these people, a lot of the people who I met, on the front lines were people who had been in the reserves before the war. And they had seen this threat from Russia for a very long time. And it reminded me of the people. I live in an apartment building in in Washington, D.C., and we have a nice roof. And we've had all kinds of people come from Eastern Europe over the last 20 years that I've been here. And I used to have debates with them about how evil NATO was, especially after the Iraq war, Afghanistan, and uh, Libya. And basically, these Eastern Europeans would always be arguing with me, and they appeared to see something inside Russia that I just could not see, that I could not understand. And... These guys in Ukraine definitely saw that. I mean, the the irony, which I've said many times on this show, was that Putin railed and railed against NATO encroachment. And instead, he's basically enhanced the prestige of NATO because by this invasion, it became very clear throughout Europe that NATO was a defense organization and it, and needed now. And that's something that for Americans, and especially Americans on the left, is very hard to understand because we've always been opposed to NATO and thought, you know, after the collapse of the, the wall and uh, the integration of Eastern Europe into the rest of the capitalist world, that NATO had no purpose for being. And yet it stayed on and it stayed on a moribund institution, a bureaucracy that perpetuates itself. And then all of a sudden now, you know, people are rushing to join it. And, and, and I, I don't, I think, Jeremy, I really want to leave part of this discussion about American left perceptions of the war um, mm-hmm. toward the end, because sure. this, there's a lot to say about that. And I know mm-hmm. you have some very sharp observations, not only from Ukraine and Russia, but from living in DC mm-hmm. and being in Latin America. So all the right coordinates for you, you know, in, right. in this sense. But but maybe we should talk. I want to go back a little bit to, you know, how you got to Russia and when you left, and then to talk a little bit just about Russia and Russian 
attitudes. And just one little thing I wanted to add about, you know, the news today, there's a report on Robcor, which is a Raboche correspondent, which means, you know, workers' correspondence, I guess. And there they have reports from Marines fighting in the territory of the Donbass, uh, complaining of very large, unjustified losses, which they say they're doomed because of incompetent command. You were talking about artillery and the first time you've ever seen an art, a war of artillery. And when most people hear that, I think they think of like, you know, World War One. And I'd like you to talk a little bit more about that. But one last part on this, in this same report, in Voronezh, wives and mothers of the mobilized are bombarding their local governors and officials to ask about the fate of their loved ones they don't know. And then they're saying, why were they sent to the front unprepared and without proper weapons? And then there's letters pouring in from those who were sent to the front, and they're not sending it to Moscow. They're sending it to their localities, to their governors again, because that kind of tells you a lot about the collapse of vertical command, (laughs) that um, they don't have any bulletproof vests or uniforms or food or even weapons. And so they want to find somebody to blame for that, and they're leaving. So anyway, so let's go back to then, you know, having said all of that, why you went to Russia? And maybe before you do that, just talk a little bit about the artillery war. Okay. Well, first, I'd like to talk about the artillery war. Russia does have some pretty good artillery. I'm sure it has. Everyone who has been in that war has said that they have some really lousy units and that they have some really lousy equipment. But their artillery equipment is actually pretty good when they use it correctly. And where uh, around Kherson, they were using it correctly. I'm not sure. I, I, I would like to get a whole bunch of information. I'd like to FOIA exactly what happened in Kherson, because the withdrawal seemed very orderly. And I'm not, and that's very unlike <laughs> anything else that we've seen in this war. So that's that's and for, some were afraid that it meant there was a trap. So it was so orderly that they thought <laughs> yeah. it was a trap. Yeah. Well, I would think that too, based on everything else that's happened. But uh apparently it wasn't. And so the question is, is is what was going on? Was were the Chinese involved in some kind of deal behind the scenes or or what's going on here? But it didn't seem after everything that looked like it was going to happen, that it was going to be a really tough fight to have that happen is very surprising for me. I have no idea what really happened, but I would like to find out. I turned (laughs) 65 and I thought I needed to do something with my brain. (laughs) And I needed to do something with my body. I started yoga and I wanted to learn another language very quickly Russian was the cheapest language to learn because the Russian and the hardest, maybe. <laughs> well, no, the the alternatives were were uh, Arabic and Chinese. Even harder. Yeah. <laughs> okay. So, okay. Okay. <laughs> so so uh, we were, you know, it was fair, a lot easier. But the place where I started to study just a few hours a week was the Russian Cultural uh, Center in Washington D.C., which is a Russian government operation. And very nice people there, most of whom were kicked out of the country as 
for working in the uh, in the security services of, of, of Russia. But nonetheless, very nice people. And they were very helpful in um, teaching me basic Russian. And uh, after that, they helped get me into uh, a program in Moscow State University, which has a, a good program, and then into another program uh, the following year in the uh, Pushkin Institute in Moscow. And so I uh, I would spend four to six months in Moscow every year, except for the COVID year, uh, the first COVID year. Um, and I was able to watch Moscow sort of change. When I first got to Moscow, it was in 2017, and it was a Moscow is a very beautiful city, and it seemed like things were going fairly well there on many levels, at least. And of course, when you come in, you're sort of your eyes are sort of bewildered by the situation when you come into a new country. But it was uh, quite a wonderful place, and the. Unlike we've talked about uh, our experiences in Moscow, and unlike your experience, the supermarkets were <laughs> full, absolutely full. There were a lot of fruit from all over the place. It was a very, uh, very pleasant place. There wasn't a lot of hard alcohol drinking that Russia is known for, and non-alcoholic beers were very popular. You know, it's very different kind of culture. You look on the street, you see gay people on the street, go to Gorky Park, there's people with bongo drums and and hippies doing hippie things. (laughs) And basically, and you have, there is, you hear about some repression in the background, but there wasn't much at that time. There is, I mean, there were TV stations, there's there's Dojt, and then there was Echo of Moscow Radio, and which is also had a TV station. And then you had various, basically, I mean, it wasn't a free press, but it wasn't a completely shut down press at all. And uh, there were demonstrations and there were people running for political positions that were not part of the, uh, uh, the major parties. And the longer I was there, things just got, a little worse, a little worse, and a little worse, and a little worse. And there were some amusing points, though. One was the elections of 2018. And I watched those very carefully on TV. And basically, you had elections in which there were these debates. And all of the candidates, except Putin, would be (laughs) in the debate. And they would have fistfights throw water on each other. It was it was quite a circus. It, it, it was very amusing, but it had, clearly this was not a functioning democracy. That's that's what came out of it. And clearly these people were, were there for show. And there were more assassinations, more assassination attempts, and things just gradually got worse. I came back last november I, I well last november i was in moscow and 
essentially, well, one of the things going to Moscow at that time, in order to get into any museum or anything like that, you had to have a, a Sputnik shot. They would not recognize my Moderna vaccinations, <laughs> you know, so, and that did change later. But basically, Moscow was. This is uh, COVID vaccination nationalism. Exactly. <laughs> exactly. Although Sputnik's pretty damn good, except only, well, I'd already had three other shots by that point. So, <laughs> I mean, but then I got COVID. COVID got, was really rampant in Moscow. And we think that our government didn't do a very good job. The Russians did a horrible job. And you would hear Russians, and part of the psychology of Russians was you'd hear them saying that people need to toughen up. If people die from it, you know, they'll be replaced. That kind of mentality is very disturbing, frankly. And also a lot of anti-vaxxers, just probably on a par with here or more. Yes. Yeah, yes, definitely on a par with here, for sure. And do you you think that that's a basic distrust of anything the government says they should do? There's certainly an element of that, for sure. I, I think that that, uh, that may be the reason, yeah. However, a lot of people who had access to European and American news also had that opinion, which is very, very strange, because you would think that they would uh, know better with better access to information. One of the things about being in Moscow, though, was that every time I would get on a public transportation that wasn't the metro underground, whenever we'd go past a church or cathedral, people would cross themselves. And that that was very interesting for me. Why would you want to do that? I mean, especially after so, so much scientific socialism for so long <laughs> how could you have these funny beliefs and and i was with someone else actually on a couple of occasions where we crossed the street to avoid a black cat this kinds of superstitions are ex- extremely new to me i you know i've heard people i have to interject about, just one second cuz you're finally saying something that gels with my own experience of going to Russia throughout the 90s and up until like say 2005 and 6 when it was in the worst period and coming out of the Soviet period there was no you know people were not religious although because religion had been repressed there was they were curious about it and the only people who ever crossed themselves were old babushkas and you know uh, others but for the other part it was just this has been not allowed, so let's go see what it is. But it was not like out of any religious fervor, you know. So that was that's interesting to me. But you know, other than that, you know, the, it is such a gorgeous city, and people are so warm and wonderful. Not on the street, not in the stores, but when you actually get together with them, there's something about it that makes everybody just want to be there. <laughs> yeah, when I first got there, even the police were very friendly. And would tell you where, I mean, if your Russian was really bad, which it was in the beginning, and may have continued to be for a little while, they would be very helpful in the beginning. 
but towards the end uh, things really changed quite quite drastically there was uh in early before the invasion in in january there was this feeling in the air of something really bad going to happen i mean it it was it, it was something i even posted on it in 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 facebook because it was uh i mean it was just so apparent there was a feeling of dread and you know this was a time when you had the ministry of um, mid what's on the defense you mean no not defense in ostrani del foreign relations oh for yeah foreign relations ministry was going on and on about how there wouldn't be an invasion and yet there was a certain amount of nervousness going on and it was fortunately the last when i was there in in january and february i was living right behind the ministry of defense and I was on the eighth floor, and when there'd be helicopters coming in, I could see the occupants of the helicopters, and of course, those were only high officials coming in. And so I I immediately wanted to change my apartment, which I uh, did as, <laughs> as I could. Uh, and then left the country. Well, then I left the country a little later. But um, one of the things is, is that I was living over a supermarket where they had had a stolovaya, uh, they had a, a place where they served food. And Russian officers would come in there. And I would sit there with a copy of my Dugan book. <laughs> in English. So, yeah, uh, so yeah. this is the, the philosopher that is called Putin's brain. <laughs> brain, right, right. Just to see what the reaction would be. And... You know, the people who noticed that the the officers, m- m- most people didn't notice it, but those who did were appeared to be very much fans. And that gets me to the uh, to thinking about the or, or wanting to talk about the military propaganda that was in the patriotic propaganda that imbued the whole country since I since I got there. And first of all, I was very thrilled by it because I'm interested in Cold War and Second World War history. But there would be dozens, there were dozens of fairly decent movies being produced in Russia, only in Russian, and you don't see them here, but they all glorified the Second World War or other things. And it was uh, especially tank war. Mm. And, you know, you get into these uh, T-34s and, you know, you just fire a few rounds and then all of those German Tigers are gone. You know, that kind of storyline and very patriotic, refighting the war against the Germans over and over again. And and this was this was something very uh, something that I really noticed. And a lot of young people who weren't part of the intelligentsia would be going to this. I had a, um, one of my, uh, I had an online tutor who lived in Chelyabinsk and she was a teacher by day. And uh, she was very much pro-Putin. And she just sucked these 
these movies up. <laughs> it was it was like uh, a, a big deal, and and she's the kind of person that would go see Eugene Onegin every year, <laughs> kind of thing. Very Russian patriot. But uh, I think one of the things that we miss here in the United States is how propagandized these people are about how great Russia is, how it should be how it should be dominant in the world it's a, you know it should be a superpower they were screwed over by the, the by the west when the soviet union fell but they've gotten up and to a large extent putin did bring them back up or at least oil and gas did yes, it's really it, interesting I think you're right yeah yeah mm-hmm. i mean it's really interesting you know to me jeremy because what you're describing is the sort of role and it's really what Putin has been doing since he literally was brought into power by Yeltsin in 2000. And he, you know, his goal was to reestablish a strong central state to uh, reimbue the Russians who had suffered from catastrophic losses during the Yeltsin period, including a significant uh, mortality rate, loss of hope, uh, a lot of alcoholism, uh, all of that. And he wanted to restore a sense of Russia's grandeur, or at least, you know, bring people into that. And and it was really interesting to me going there in the early period to see how people misread his cues, because there was such a collapse and so much crime in the streets and people being shot and, and theft and people being impoverished. That they looked to Putin and said, yeah, and he's going to pay our wages, too, because they've been, you know, in a barter economy for mm-hmm. so many years and not getting paid except in kind. And you'd see people selling whatever they worked, you know, mm-hmm. in the lines at the metro and real poverty. So Putin represented to them somebody who was going to clean it up, you know, but also restore their cradle to grave security. And that's not what he <laughs> what he did. But, but But I just wanted to say, because mm-hmm. you're talking about a sort of silent buildup that you were able to witness in these last years. And I know Putin was really rattled by Mm -hmm. the uprisings in Belarus and the workers' protests in Kazakhstan. Mm -hmm. And and even the elections you mentioned that he had to fudge, you know, Mm -hmm. because his party was in decline and living standards were not uh, going up, but were stagnating. Mm -hmm. So, you know, it seems like his overarching fear was that those kinds of uprisings would come home to Russia. And so, you know, a war is always a great way to <laughs> to counteract that. And it was seemed to me like there's there was such chaos in the beginning when Russia invaded in mm-hmm. in in February, catching every all the observers by surprise. I, I didn't think he'd do mm-hmm. it. Even if as he was massing troops on the border, I thought it was just a show of bluster and at most, you know, there would be some kind of exercise. But then I think the interesting or let's say unexpected and uh, hopeful sign was that right away there were massive protests against the war in 40 cities. And then he cracked down and he outlawed the use of the word war. And anybody wearing a shirt or carrying a banner would be arrested and put in jail for 15 days. And it just got worse from there on in. And then he said you couldn't say the word war. You had to say special military operation, you know, and this is when you get the huge uh, propaganda. And, and I think it was uh, Kagerlitsky who I had on here said you could mm-hmm. uh, look at Russian opinions. There was no public support for the war. But people, after they saw what was going on, they also decidedly did not want to have an opinion on the war. 
And you could you could divide it between the the television and the internet generation. Not necessarily age or regional, just depends if you got all your news from TV at night, which was heavily propagandized, or if you had a VPN line and could, you know, get to internet Mm -hmm. sources. And so so that was one way that he quieted the population and 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 there was more and more repression. Um, and so in, in some ways, I think what happened is as it went on, people felt it was safer not to express an opinion. Although you're saying that there was just this old, old fashioned patriotism and there's that as well. But at the same time, you saw this massive exodus that most people are not, you know, talking about where up to four million Russians have left. And when he did that special mobilization, it seemed like to me crazy. All of a sudden, Putin undid six months of work and trying to. Pre- trying to persuade people that there was no war. And now all of a sudden they need massive amounts of troop for this special military operation. And uh, and there you saw just as many people leave the country as he was calling up. So that kind of sets the scene, you know, for now in the conflict. I mean, I guess not conflict, but the contradiction that you're expressing about ordinary Russians wanting to support the war. One last thing I was going to say is that, you know, um, Ilya Medvedev was on here just mm-hmm. after Putin made that speech after the annexation. And he said that, you know, the West looked at that as completely deranged. And he said, it, Russians it, are used to, no, no, I'm talking about now when oh, yeah. after okay. they, mm-hmm. you know, Putin decided to annex right. the, mm-hmm. uh, all mm-hmm. of the, uh, the Donbass and also Kherson and other areas. <laughs> yeah. And he was annexing parts that he didn't yet control. Right. And so now, and now retreating. And so it's, it was like a matter of show. I mean, even the, the the ballot, the referendum, people there reported that there was no referendum, but just a few, you know, photo opportunities to show you. but but he just did that. So it seemed kind of desperate in a way. And I and I you know, so I want to hear more of your sort of conversations, not you know, you, you mentioned one with your Russian teacher in Chelyabinsk, but others who who either would not express an opinion to you or were were very patriotic and hopeful that you know, I guess I also want to hear from you because so many people in Russia, a third of them have relatives in Ukraine or are Ukrainian or have some connection. So did they buy this line that, you know, uh, Ukrainians were all Nazis needed to be needing to be denazified? Um, okay. The people that I talked Okay, I know several people who actually left. Yeah. And like, I left. And you should say why you left. I left because, I mean, I would go into a store, people would look at me strangely, and this had never happened before. One time I was, I had to buy a suitcase in order to leave, well, so I could pack things. And a cop stood over me while I was doing the transaction. And, and it was, and this was after the invasion had started. So there was, I, I mean, there was a, clearly the mood had changed. Also, right after the invasion, there was a run on the banks. And there were oh. lines around the block. And I remember. That I tells remember you something. That, yeah, yeah, there was <laughs> something, you know, people wanted to take out their money and, and leave. So I I know a lot of people like that, but there are a lot of people who I met who, if they had to stay, they would not criticize it. Mm. They just would not criticize it. And including, I know someone who whose father was was essentially of Ukrainian stock, and she wouldn't criticize it. You know, so 
because she was going to stay in Moscow. And the people, though, in the in in sort of the boonies outside of the major cities, they tend to be the ones that that get conscripted. Mm-hmm. They tend to, but they tend to be true believers, or at least that's how they come off sounding. You know, when when you talk to them now, if you if you're in uh, Moscow now, you can take taxis very cheaply. You can do Uber or there's there's other services too, Yandex, and if you talk to the taxi drivers, you'll get a real mix of of, of opinions. If you talk to Russian taxi drivers, uh, they tend to be very patriotic. And, you know, well, we're going to win this war in three days. But if you talk to Chechens and people, uh, there are a lot of uh, Asian. Dagestanis, too. All kinds of people. They are sort of. They well, at least there was a che- Chechen taxi driver who was who was actually quite happy that there was war there because there might be a renewed independence movement in Chechnya, and so that was very interesting. Uh, well, it was a very interesting conversation. But basically, you have a situation where I think that there is still considerable support for this war in Russia. And it's the people who have left or have have left, and they're, they're trying to find ways of staying out outside of the country and surviving, probably. Well, let's talk about why you left, and you know, and then let's talk about what you saw in Ukraine and, and your attitudes, the attitudes you encountered there, and what you said you want to go back, and you are going back, and you're learning Ukrainian as well. So let's hear that story. Okay, okay, basically. I left because, well, I had a ticket to leave and uh, in, in March. And uh, the day before I was supposed to leave, I got a, a text message saying that there was no flights anymore. <laughs> so, and this was from Aeroflot. And Aeroflot is actually a pretty, used to be a pretty good airline before Putin just destroyed it. Mm-hmm. Uh, and those people actually uh, worked very hard to get me out through Dubai. But it was very clear to me that I could not stay in Russia. And usually when I when I was going to come back, I would usually postpone my trip for a couple of weeks to a month because I like to be in Moscow. At, at this point, being in Moscow was just felt very dangerous. Being on the street, you know, it's very clear as soon as you open your mouth that you're not from there. And there was this feeling of xenophobia, perhaps, amongst the Russians. Any Anyone from the outside was, uh, you know, this wasn't across everyone, but there was enough of it, or at least I felt that that's what was big. Maybe I was projecting, but uh, it certainly did not feel safe. And trips that I was going to make to, say, a market or or whatever, I just canceled. I just thought, no, it's, you know, something could happen on the way. You know, we, we do not want to go to leave. So that's why, uh, that that's how I left. But I did have some American friends who stayed longer. And they essentially uh, got out, but it was a very scary experience for them. And how did you get to Ukraine? Well, 
the way you get to Ukraine is pretty easy these days. You you fly to Poland or Czechoslovakia or Romania or Moldova mm-hmm. uh, or Hungary, but maybe you don't want to go through Hungary. So I flew through uh, Poland and you take a train to the border and then you take another train to Kiev because none of the uh, airports, of course, are, the airports are, are very much closed. And uh, it's usually a train at night, and they usually ask you to blacken everything out. Now, why the Russians would not be able to detect a train from the sky, I don't know. But but this is what was going on. When I first got to Ukraine and I got into hotel room, the first person that I met, and I didn't meet another one the whole time I was there, was an American volunteer. And I don't know whether he'd been prompted by other volunteers to say the same thing, but he was atoning for his sins in Iraq, is what he told me. Yeah. And (laughs) that was very interesting. We had a long talk, and he was absolutely, uh, well, he he told me that it was was a very tough fight, and it was tougher than anything that he'd ever been in in the U.S. military. And that the, the... Tables were completely turned in the U.S. military. You had all of these really advanced weapons. You had air support, all of that stuff. Uh, In in this case, you had much less of that. But basically, uh, Ukrainians were very nice, very warm, and uh, really wanted people to be there to cover the situation, they felt more comfortable having, especially foreign press around who were re- reporting things. Because basically, I mean, they were being invaded and uh, they wanted the world to know. Yeah, and fighting a war, you know, for their national salvation, you could say. Right, right. A- absolutely. The other thing about, well, the place where I went immediately was Odessa because uh, for me, Odessa was very, uh, well, and for the Russians, it was the jewel that they really wanted to take. And this was very important for for uh, the, the Russian advance to take Odessa after it was clear that they could not take Kiev. And Odessa is a very culturally mixed city. And it's mainly Russian-speaking. But again, I didn't find anyone who supported anything having to do with Russia at any time. Uh, you know, people spoke in Russian, and that was easier for me because I, I, I spoke much better Russian than Ukrainian at that point. And uh, so very nice people wanting to engage you. And I did meet, I met, and this is interesting, I met Crimean refugees. In, mm. in Odessa. And I was at, at a sort of like hostel hotel type thing. And, and one of them and his wife were staying there while he was on leave. And I had never met uh, Crimean Tatars who were interested in returning. I had been to Crimea before as, as part of Russia. I mean, after it had been annexed. And that was a very interesting experience too. I didn't meet anyone in Crimea because I 
I, had I gotten connections through the press, I could have found people in Crimea who were anti-Putin. But I just did. one footnote, just you know, for the listeners, uh, the Crimean Tatars were all transferred out of there, expelled by Stalin, and not allowed to return, and only began to return after the collapse in '92 of the you know the disintegration of the Soviet Union, and uh, and then they started filtering back in, and apparently were hostile to the annexation. They were quite quite hostile. There were a couple that the Russians bought off and were able to sort of show as, as here are three Tatars who are going to say that they're very happy with this annexation. But other than that, yeah, there wasn't much. But Crimea is going to be a very important issue in the future. I see it as, a, as, as absolutely uh, well, it's critical to understand that most of the people there are indeed pro-Russian. So what happens with those people if the uh, Ukrainians take take over? And how much will the Russians fight to keep Sevastopol, which is this huge military base and their only warm water military base, major military base? I mean, they have patrol boats in other places, but this is this is the the Russian Navy, and it has been that for a very long time. So the question, that is a huge question for me. Where is this going to go? What's going to happen to Crimea? If Crimea, if if those people are not, if if they stay there and it becomes part of Ukraine, I'm not sure whether that would be very good for Ukraine, because you'd have this Trojan horse. There's been a lot of investment. It's The investment has been by all of Putin's friends, the Putin's oligarchs. That's going to be a very difficult situation. And that's something that that will have to be uh, that will have to be worked out before this war ends. But in Uh, 2014, when, you know, Crimea was annexed, it was, you know, I did not think it was unusual for them to have wanted to go with Russia because Ukraine was a basket case economically. And if you had a choice of getting your pension doubled by, you know, being with Russia or not knowing what you were going to do if you stayed with Ukraine, it seemed like a no brainer. On the other hand, you know, if you look at uh, Crimea was only given to Ukraine in 1954. And people always like to cite this drunken conversation by Khrushchev, but mm-hmm. uh, more intelligent, let's call it yeah, scholarly sources talk about uh, Russia giving it to Ukraine because it was too economically difficult to support. In that period. And so for whatever the reason, Crimea has not traditionally or or historically been part of Ukraine, except since, you know, I guess it's, what, 60 years now. So that's that's more than nothing. But um, but I think you're right. And of course, this kind of takes us to the attitudes of many in the U.S. who say, well, this is the negotiating point. Let Russia have it. You know, once again, always thinking, you know, in geopolitical terms and not about people on the ground. Well, the thing is, is that when you bring that up to Ukrainians, uh, they're dead sent against it. And the other concept is, I mean, if uh, Ukraine wants their territory back and there's really it right now, it would be very hard to get Ukrainians to agree with allowing uh, Sevastopol port to maintain it itself as a military base after all of the damage it's caused after the 
you know, a, a couple million refugees produced by it. You know, I don't know how many people, you know, how many thousands of people have been killed by the missiles coming out of there. But the Ukrainians are really dead set against it. And basically, it's their war. And we got to respect that. And that's something that I do not see happening amongst the uh, uh, some members of the left. The uh, uh, Well, especially this is a good place for us to do this because, you know, you've got a unique perspective, Jeremy. You know, you're an American, but you've been living in other war zones, particularly Latin America. You certainly understand what American aggression and imperialism looks like mm-hmm. uh, and on the, or let's say military aid. Mm-hmm. And then on the other hand, you you decided to go to Russia, and now you got, I guess, what's the word? You you got a view of what that kind of Russian military aggression looks like. So when you came back to Washington, you know, what was it at the end of the summer? Mm-hmm. Um, then you were thrown into how much of the American left you know, got divided here. And it seems it's to me, it's it, it's a dividing line. Like if people cannot see that mm. Russia's war on Ukraine was, first of all, genocidal in, intent, its conduct is, you know, plunder, scorch and burn. And then, of course, using up, we, we haven't talked about casualties, but uh, using young Russians as cannon fodder, Mm-hmm. And then seeing res- the resolve of Ukrainians to fight against an invader. It's a war of defense. And then, you know, for you to come to Washington, that's sort of where you were going. So I want you to pick up there about, you know, what the attitudes there were. Well, uh, basically, I'm just, I'm dumbfounded by how naive much of the left is about the nature of Russia. Now, I shouldn't be, perhaps, because. A few years ago, maybe I was just as dumb. Uh, you know, maybe I just didn't quite understand what it was all about. For instance, I'd read uh, Timothy Snyder's Bloodlands, and I thought he was over the top until I lived in Russia, you know, and until I'd seen uh, what was going on in Ukraine. And I don't know how to get get this through people's heads on how dangerous it would be to have Russia have even more very productive territory from which it can raise a lot more money for a lot more offensive action. It it just boggles the mind why people can't see that danger. It's a clear and present danger to all of Europe. And, you know, if you're in Poland, for instance, I, I, I spent a little bit of time in Poland. Poles are very afraid. Yeah, they should be. They have a, a memory of, of a giant war. But I was going to just, you know, add to that because we don't have oodles of time left, Jeremy, that, you know, it's really painful to watch uh, so many on the left in the U.S. And and it's not just in the left. It's also in the South, you know, in, in Latin America and some mm-hmm. a few, not too many in Europe. But mm-hmm. they refuse to understand the legitimacy of, of Ukraine's war against Putin's invasion. Or they have this deluded notion that Ukrainian surrender or acceptance of, you know, giving up territory would bring somehow peace through negotiation. Some of them are genuine pacifists mm-hmm. uh, and are always anti-war, like, you know, mm-hmm. Code Pink or Roots Action. Mm-hmm. But on the other hand, there's this notion that American imperialism and NATO 
imperialism are always the cause of everything, you know, and that you have to rail against them and you can't give any ground on that. And, and, you know, you and I talked about this earlier that, you know, Ukrainians are invisible Mm -hmm. uh, to those who only see things through the prism of anti-Americanism or anti, you know, imperialism. And we're on the left, so we can sort of share that. But my goodness, as you say, oh, take your blinders off. Yeah, there's there's more than one imperialist power in the world. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> yes. And of course, yeah, it, there's this reflexive sort of, you know, the enemy of my enemy is my friend. And this notion that somehow Russia is still the Soviet Union, even if, you know, whatever that was. Um, and so there's this, right. there's that, you know, but a refusal to look at the authoritarian, dictatorial and even cruel nature, you right. know of that regime. That's uh, not by saying that that doesn't mean that you support NATO or support America in, in all of its adventures in Iraq, Afghanistan or anywhere. But I think, you know, so 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 I'd like to hear a little bit more about your view of that. We call them what? Tankies or <laughs> yeah, the tankies, the tankies. Yeah. <laughs> well, I, I I'm wondering where all of this came from and I think that the Russians really made a big a really good investment for themselves or Putin in RT and Sputnik and all of that that those organizations were very much able to employ a lot of american leftists and some of them left disgusted not wanting to tout the russian line on everything on everything uh, but others didn't, and you have um, you have organizations like uh, Code Pink, which invite uh, such people to lecture them on on what's going on in the world. And this is a really it's really disturbing to see this. It's almost as bad as sort of the Molotov Ribbentrop job. Uh, uh, yes. Uh, That's the Stalin-Hitler pact. Pact, yeah. I mean, it's, you know, it's it's very bad. There's also a a funding source that really interests me, and that is the Serena Shim Award. And uh, that is uh, funding a lot of these people. And I don't know where that money comes from, but it's funding, say, the Gray Zone. Which has become completely Putinist. It's completely Putinist. So, is that also a Syrian fund? What is that? Yes, that's. I mean, it's it's Syrian. Now, I'm not sure where. Uh, I'm not going to say that their money comes from Russia because I don't know. But it is very suspicious that everyone who's associated is very pro-Putin. Yeah. So this is very discouraging and it must, I, I, you know, we, we are literally out of time, but I'd like to just have you finish there with, I guess, your incredulity when you saw this. Did you, uh, you know, like, have you actually engaged in conversation with anybody there or, um, I mean, I have seen friendships break some of my own, in well, fact. Okay. Well, it's good that you're saying that. Uh, yes. Friendships have broken over this, uh, this whole issue. And actually, quite a few of them, some very good or people who I consider to be very uh, progressive and very, uh-huh. you know, advanced and thoughtful people have gone this way. 
it's really quite disturbing. Now, I can understand the reaction to the to the United States. I mean, the United States has been this. In fact, the only time when I've seen the U.S. do anything that I consider good is in Ukraine. <laughs> I mean, and just supply the weapons, don't get involved. I never saw a U.S. advisor in Ukraine. They maybe exist, but I never saw them. Uh, but it's the only thing where it's done something halfway decent in my lifetime. Jeremy Bigwood, thank you so much for those observations. I think we could speak another hour easily, mm-hmm. <laughs> and I hope that we do at some point. But uh, just for the listeners, Jeremy Bigwood is an investigative journalist and a photojournalist. And he, uh, after spending a decade in Latin America covering the wars there, when he reached that retirement age and wanted to stay agile, he went to live in Russia and learned Rus- Russian and then uh, went to Ukraine, mm-hmm. as you've heard, and has been covering the Ukrainian conflict and has every intention of going back. Is that right? That's right. Absolutely. Absolutely. Thank you, Susie. Jeremy Bigwood, thanks so much for joining us today on Jacobin Radio.